Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Having a positive mindset comes with an unbelievable number of benefits, from better physical and mental health to improved relationships and performance at work. If you've got a more negative bent, you're really missing out on a lot. Fortunately, my guest says it's possible to shift into a more positive gear. Her name is Dr. Katherine Sanderson. And she's a professor of psychology at Amherst College. In her latest book, The Positive Shift, she highlights scores of studies that show how a positive mindset can make us healthier and happier and how that mindset can be achieved. Today, she shares those insights with us, beginning with debunking the idea that a positive outlook means being naively Pollyannish in disposition. Katherine then walks through what the research says about the surprisingly robust benefits of having a positive perspective, which affects every area of your life. We then discuss specific tactics you can use to develop a more positive outlook, even if you have an inboard inclination towards being negative. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash positive shift. Catherine Sanderson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for the invitation to be here. So you are a professor of psychology, and you've written this book, The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health, and Longevity. So what got you researching and writing about uh, the benefits of positivity or a positive outlook on life? So I teach a variety of classes. I do research on health psychology issues. I do research on relationship satisfaction. And within about the last 10 years within the field of psychology, there's been a growing movement to looking at how those things actually interrelate. That in fact, the quality of our relationships has a major impact on our health. And as I started doing more and more reading and research on this topic, it really became clear to me that so much of our happiness and our health is actually within our own control. And for me, someone who's not naturally positive, this was actually really encouraging. Yeah, I found that I'm, I'm sort of an Eeyore at times too. And we'll talk about how we can control that and how much of that's genetic. But, <laughs> I, I feel your pain. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but let's, let's, what do we mean by positivity? Because I think a lot of people listening to this, particularly guys, they think of like Haley Mills and Pollyanna, you know, just like it's un, like super, super positive, super cheesy. Is that what positivity look like or what, what does it look like actually? Yeah, that's a really important question because it in fact is not, you know, going through life like everything is perfect and it's all, you know, sunshine and rainbows. Positivity basically means not getting bogged down in terms of negative emotions. And I think for women, you're exactly right that there may be different sort of ways in which that manifests itself. Women are more likely to feel anxious, depressed. Men have other kinds of negative emotions that are more prevalent, like anger, for example, if you think about road rage or something. So positivity isn't about going through life just being like everything's wonderful, but it's really about reducing the experience of negative emotions, whether that's anxiety, depression, loneliness, anger, frustration, et cetera. So it looks a lot like resilience oftentimes. Absolutely. And it's frankly being able to bounce back when bad things happen because the reality is bad things do happen and they happen to all of us personally, professionally, and so on. And people who have a positive outlook are better able to buffer these negative experiences and not sort of get stuck in negativity. So you spent a lot of the book talking about the benefits of positivity. Let's walk through some of those. For example, what are the, we often think of positivity as an emotional, uh, a mental, uh, the benefits there, but there's actually physiological like health benefits of having a positive outlook on life. What are some of those? 
So that's such an important finding because what we now see in the research is that people who have a general positive outlook on life experience lots of positive benefits. And this includes, as you noted, physiological changes in the body. So this is things like lower blood pressure, you know, lower heart rate. There's evidence of lower levels of a hormone, a stress hormone called cortisol. And the people who tend to be positive have lower levels of these other physiological markers that are linked with worse health outcomes. So what are some of like the worst, the bad health outcomes that can come from being like an Eeyore all the time? Well, pretty much you name it and it's there. I mean, from small things like people who are more negative are more likely to acquire the common cold. So there's a you know pretty low level problem that we've all experienced, but research has shown that if you measure people's levels of positivity and then with the people's permission, you inject a cold virus in their nostril, people who are positive are less likely to manifest signs of the cold later on. So that's just a really clear marker of how People who are positive have a stronger immune system and therefore can buffer negative effects of things that would get other people down. So there's a you know pretty low-level problem, the common cold. Research has also shown that people with a positive outlook are less likely to experience more serious problems, heart attack, stroke, angina, you know, cardiovascular problems. There's also evidence that people with a more positive outlook actually live longer. So really across the whole range of different levels of health outcomes, there are tremendous benefits of positivity. Yeah, I mean, it can even affect things like obesity or blood glucose because cortisol all plays an influence on whether you retain fat or whether your blood glucose is elevated and that can lead to type 2 diabetes. Absolutely. And and that's one of the ways in which the research has been so clear over the last you know five to 10 years that we're now understanding the interconnection between our thoughts and physiological markers in the body that, of course, are linked to these negative health outcomes. Well, so you talk, you mentioned aging. People who have a positive outlook on life tend to live longer than people who are negative, but also having a positive outlook on life can make aging more enjoyable and filled with vitality because people typically think of getting old as like, oh, like the grandma and like movies from the 1950s where they wear a shawl and you're just like (laughs) shuttling through the hallways. Like it doesn't have to be like that. No. And, and one of the things that I just think is so clear is that in our society, images about getting older are so negative. I literally turned 50 about a month ago and people were like, oh, you know, oh, 50, whatever. And I'm like, you know what? It feels great to be 50. And I really hope I feel that way at 60 and and 70 and beyond. But the reason why we have these negative images is that exactly as you said, we have this assumption that, you know, people shuffle along and, you know, people can't drive and, you know, they develop, you know, hard of hearing and dementia and whatever. All of these stereotypes are so negative and and people with a positive outlook about aging don't buy into those and therefore continue to be active in their careers and communities and volunteer work and so on and very physically active because they don't buy into those stereotypes. All right. So they have a positive outlook on it. And so, yeah, even like the whole, that idea that as you get older, you become forgetful. That's often just a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Exactly. And I think one of the most interesting findings is that 
if it's true that neurologically, you know, your brain decays with age, we should see that same association across cultures. And the reality is you don't. So in cultures in which there are positive views about aging, you know, with age comes wisdom and experience and, you know, older people have so much to give. You don't see those negative associations with aging and uh, decay in memory. And that really suggests it's not just a biological process. It's very much self-fulfilling prophecy. And you see that those are cultures typically in the East, correct? Yeah, it's many Asian cultures. Right here in the West, we think you, the, young. It's, it's great to be young here in the West, not so much to be old, but that's not doesn't have to be true. Exactly. Also, positivity can influence things like your career, correct? Absolutely. Because part of the issue is that people who are positive, when they experience a failure, disappointment, you know, professional rejection, et cetera, they're able to bounce back. They're able to say, you know what? I'm going to try harder. I'm going to approach this in a new way and so on. And so when negative things happen, they don't get stuck. And so professionally, they can bounce back from failure. They also, because they know they have this ability to bounce back, they're less afraid of trying. That many people go through life being afraid of failure and rejection, personally and professionally. And that leads them to not take risks. And of course, the reality is taking some risks can really pay off in terms of career advancement, in terms of development of romantic relationships. Well, we'll talk about relationships here in a bit, but like going about staying on the career thing, also people just, your coworkers will enjoy being around you more if you have a positive outlook, right? I mean, that, that helps a lot with your career. It, it, absolutely. And and many careers, of course, involve directly working not only with coworkers, but you report to people. You have clients. People report to you. So we have whole big networks of people within our professional lives. And so people who are positive generally get along better with other people. People want to be around them more. And of course, we know that happiness is contagious. So hiring happy workers really pays off. And that's one of the reasons why many of the Silicon Valley companies have gone out of the way to make the workplace fun because they understand the link between happiness and professional success. How does our outlook on life, whether it's positive or negative, influence relationship? What do the studies say there? People who are positive tend to have happier relationships in terms of friendships, in terms of family relationships, in terms of marriages, you know, long-term relationships and so on. And it's very clear that there is a an association between marriage longevity. So if you look at the benefits of marriage for health, there are indeed benefits of marriage on longevity and health outcomes overall. But the key is it's not just being married, it's having a happy marriage. And people who are full of positivity, tend to relate to people better. They tend to work through conflicts instead of just bearing them or denying them or letting them build up. And so when problems or issues arise in their relationships, they're able to work through them, solve them, and maintain strong and healthy relationships. So there's one study you talked about in the book that I thought was really interesting was that people in relationships where they feel ambivalent about it, where like they both feel positive and negative or actually like they, they're like worse off than people who are in like a completely negative relationship. Like what's going on yeah, there? Right. That's such an interesting finding. And, and again, research is still ongoing to really try to unpack exactly what's going on. But one possibility may be that when you have ambivalent feelings, you feel really stuck. So if a relationship is all good, of course, that's great. If a relationship is all bad, you may actually be aware 
this relationship is going to end. I'm not going to invest time and energy into it. Maybe I'm even kind of looking to get out of it or exploring other options. If you're ambivalent, it may mean that you feel really stuck because you can recognize the bad, but you can also recognize the good. And that means that you just really get mired in a situation and can't really decide whether to pull yourself out. And that again has negative effects. I can see that happening in jobs too. Absolutely. And and what's interesting is that clarity is very decisive for people, right? Because if, if you know this job is horrible or this job is great, that reduces the amount of time that you have to do what we call mentalizing, meaning thinking about it. Should I stay or should I go? And, and that sort of ambivalence, in fact, uh, is very exhausting psychologically. We've been talking about a positive outlook. We'll talk about what we can do to create more of a positive outlook on our life while mitigating the, the negative. But how much of our outlook on life, whether it's positive or negative, is due to genetics, like just our inborn temperament? So there's good news or bad news, depending on who you are. But about 50% of our happiness is due to our genes. And it's not that there's one you know, happiness gene. There's a lot of different genes that play a role. But about 50% of our happiness is, in fact, determined by our genes. And that means that some people really do have a head start. But also, I think there's a role that plays into that is like your environment. Like, I guess there's like the whole idea of epigenetics, right? If you encounter certain stressors, it might turn on those unhappiness genes. But if you didn't encounter them, you might, they might not have been turned on. Absolutely. And, and so that means that genes play some role, but they're not definitive. And, and that means that no matter where you start on this, you know, genetic lottery, your environment clearly plays a role. And that's why people can undergo the same sort of difficult circumstance, childhood trauma or, you know, growing up in poverty or, you know, times of war, et cetera. And some people seem to be able to bounce back from that. And some people really can't. Okay. So if 50% is determined by genetics, it means we have some control, right? You might have this sort of baseline, but you have some control. What is- 50% 50 is is in your control. Right. And that is a lot. (laughs) So what can we do to start expecting good things to happen? Like if you're typically like an Eeyore, what can you do to start having a mind shift to, to occur? Mindset shift. Sure. So really important question. Two sets of things. So one is actually being aware- that your thoughts matter. And so for people who naturally are are somewhat negative, and, and I fall into this category, and it sounds like you fall into this category, for people who are naturally negative, they're often not aware of it. They're just like, well, that's just the world. And they're not aware that that's actually not the world. That's their thoughts about the world. So one, being aware that your thoughts matter and trying to then catch yourself if something negative or bad happens so that you can reframe it. So the first step is really changing your thoughts, but that means you have to be aware when you're having these thoughts and you have to practice reframing them. So something that used to be seen as, you know, sort of this horrible disaster, you're able to put a more positive outlook on instead. And so that's one set of things, changing your thoughts. And well, and I can give an example of that. Would that be helpful? Maybe that'd be helpful. Yeah. that. That'd be very helpful. Yeah. So so here's an example that right now many high school seniors are waiting to hear news, you know, from colleges and and many students will get rejected from, you know, their top choice or whatever. And they can think of that as a calamity. Oh my gosh, you know, I didn't get into my top choice school and I'm never going to be happy or employed or, you know, whatever. And and that's an example, of course, of a of a total overreaction. And and people could say, hey, you know what? 
I didn't get into my first choice school. This other school is great. I'm going to make a lot of friends. You know, I'm going to have a, a great college experience. And so when you get better at sort of saying this horrible thing happened and putting a positive spin on it, over time that gets more natural. I gave a talk a few years ago on happiness. And during the Q&A, a woman raised her hand and she said, you know, whenever I'm stuck in traffic, I just take a minute, I take some deep breaths and I look out the window and I admire the setting sun. And it was like this super positive, you know, view of basically being in a traffic jam. And I said, well, thanks for that question. And, you know, you really didn't need to come to the talk because she, of course, was already doing all the right things. But we can all get better at taking a negative experience and and trying to reframe negative experience in some more positive way. And I imagine this is something that if you have a tendency to be in your that you'll have to work on the rest of your life. There'll never be a moment where, like, you're just a, a tigger, right, naturally. You probably have to work on it forever. I think that's true, although I will also say I think it gets easier. So I look at the example of, you know, let's say that, you know, you are not a runner and you've decided, you know, you want to run a 10K or something. The first day that you lace on your shoes and go outside, it might be hard to run a mile. You know, it might, you might feel out of breath or your knees might hurt or your ankles or whatever. But over time, your body adapts to it and you get better at it. So again, as I said, I'm naturally pretty negative, but I've really been working on it in part, you know, through writing this book. So I had a disaster in December, you know, a month ago. My computer hard drive crashed and I lost everything. I mean, including a book manuscript that I was on deadline for. And, you know, it crashed. I went in. They were like, we can do nothing. You know, your computer's under warranty. We can get you a new computer, but, um, but you've lost everything. And, you know, I came home and my husband was like, you seem to be handling this very well. And I'm like, you know what? It's, you know, it's not cancer. It's not. And he was like, I can't believe it. Cause he like felt worse about it than I did. So, you know, it was a bummer and I'm, you know, slowly kind of, you know, recreating what I had been working on. But there's an example in that there are times in which if that had happened to me, two, three days, I like would not have gotten out of bed and I would have been, you know, I'm never going to write a book again and I have no ideas and every idea I ever had that was good was on that computer and, you know, so on. So there's an example. So yeah, for some people it, it comes easier, but for all of us, we actually can get better at doing it with practice in part because we become aware, oh yeah, you know, this is what I tend to do and I should stop. I had the the computer crash on me thing happen to me in law school and I had a paper like a like most of it done and I lost it and I had to rewrite it basically <laughs> but it actually it turned out better I think the second go around than the first go around so Now and did you know that at the time no. because that's the key No I didn't know right? that at or, the time or, <laughs> I was like Yeah okay right <laughs> <laughs> so positivity is all about reframing situations. Let's talk about specific situations where we can reframe to take a more positive look. So one example you talk about that I thought was really interesting is stress because we always think of stress as this negative that we're supposed to de-stress and not be stressed. But you argue in the book that research shows that we can actually reframe stress so it can be beneficial. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the most important research findings because we do have this over overwhelming perspective in our society. Stress is negative. Stress is bad. You know, stress is debilitating. But the reality is stress can also be viewed as exciting. 
invigorating, exhilarating. And people, in fact, can do their best work under stress. So we can think about professional athletes, for example, who, you know, always do their very best when the game is on the line, you know, when it's a must win situation, uh, you know, game seven World Series or whatever. And so the reality is that we can take examples of stress and we can frame them as this horrible, awful thing, or we can be like, this is invigorating and an opportunity and a challenge. And I feel, you know, active and alert and alive. And, and that's a way of reframing a potentially negative experience. And that, and the, the research shows that people who reframe stress in a positive way, like they don't have the, the downsides of that we typically think of that are associated with stress. No, they, they in fact have benefits in terms of lower levels of anxiety and depression. They also have better work performance. So if you take workers at, you know, a big fortune 500 company and you give them this information about, Hey, let's reframe stress. They actually are more productive in their jobs. So it has benefits personally and also professionally. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think people understand that stress, like in a physical way can leads to growth. Like when you work out, like you lift weights, like you're, you're stressing mm-hmm. the muscle and you know, well, it's going to grow from that stress, but we don't apply that same mentality to like our, our mental work that we do. Yeah, that's a really great example because it's exactly the same process of like pushing yourself and and you experience, you know, physical or psychological or mental or whatever growth as a result. All right. So the, the reframe with stress, like this is actually a chance for me to grow, uh, get better. It's not going to kill me. Like if you, don't, if you think stress is going to kill you, it's going to kill you. But if you think it's a chance to grow, it'll be a chance for you to grow. Yeah. And so I think one set of things is reframing situations like that, you know, so this is a, you know, big deadline that I'm working on, you know, paper in law school or, you know, big project that I owe a client or whatever. I think the other thing is just kind of recognize what is and is not stress. So there's a wonderful example, and this is not my book, but it's another fabulous book uh, called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And and I describe this in my book, but the reality is zebras only react physiologically, you know, heart beating fast, et cetera, when they're being chased by a lion, like when they're actually about to die. And of course, humans are like, oh my gosh, I'm in so much stress. And it's like, nothing. You know, it's, I I have a job interview. I have a blind date. I have a lot of, you know, emails in my inbox. I'm, you know, stuck in a traffic jam or whatever. None of those are actually life or death. So it's also kind of saying, "Ah, is this stress or is this not really life or death stress and, and not taking things or overreacting to sort of the small stresses of daily life that we all experience. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Create your own custom engagement ring from a variety of ethically sourced diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings, all at BrilliantEarth.com. Brilliant Earth offers custom engagement rings, wedding rings, vintage rings, as well as earrings, bracelets, and necklaces with exclusive unique designs you can't find anywhere else. Their master jewelers bring to life designs from award-winning designers with exceptionally quality and craftsmanship. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. They go above and beyond the curtain industry standards to offer beyond conflict-free diamonds, along with fine jewelry crafted from recycled precious metals. Brilliant Earth also donates 5% of profits to help build a brighter future in communities impacted by the jewelry industry. To ensure a stress-free purchase experience, Brilliant Earth offers free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders as well as flexible payment options. And just in time for Valentine's Day, if you purchase an engagement ring, if you're thinking about popping the question, if you purchase an engagement ring from Brilliant Earth, you'll also receive a complimentary pair of their gorgeous diamond stud earrings. So you get two things for the price of one. To see the terms of the special offer, to shop all of Brilliant Earth selections, just go to brilliantearth.com manliness. That's brilliantearth.com manliness. And now back to the show. 
So we talked about by having a positive outlook, we can actually make old age filled with vitality or twilight years. So how can we reframe old age so that we get that benefit? So we can think about all of the benefits. So for many people, being in old age means that you have more free time. So people who are no longer, you know, in the peak of their careers may have more time to devote to hobbies, you know, volunteer work, you know, time with family or whatever. People who are older also have very high quality relationships that research has shown that in our younger years, we're very focused on having lots of people in our lives. So very big social networks. What you see older people doing is eliminating the riffraff, like really focusing on high quality relationships. And they have fewer of them, but they're with people who they really care about and who care about them. And that leads to a number of distinct benefits. So there are lots of benefits to being older in terms of quality of life. Right. And I think one thing too is the research shows that, uh, I guess, fluid intelligence does go down as you get older. Basically, you can't think as quick on your feet. But like that wisdom, like sort of slower thinking, that experience, like you have more of that. So that has a lot of benefits too. Yes. And, and I think one of the key examples there is that if you think about memory, older people don't have to memorize facts about, you know, World War II or whatever, because they actually lived through World War II. Whereas younger people are like, oh yeah, what were all those facts? And so the reality is that having lived longer means that you have all of these experiences and they're very accessible. And that's exactly why you see this increase in crystallized intelligence as people grow older. So let's say you're doing all these things to reframe negative experiences in a more positive light, right? So you're more resilient, bounce back. But what do you do if you find yourself sucked you know, down this vortex of negativity because something bad happens and you start doing the catastrophizing, like you were mentioning earlier, like, oh, I didn't get into this school. It means I'm going to not get a good job. I'm going to be broke and live with my parents. Like, how do you manage that and get yourself out of it? So I got to be honest, it's not easy initially. So for those of us who are naturally Eeyores, it's not easy initially. So the first step is you got to recognize what you're doing. So I didn't get into the school. I didn't get this job I wanted. You know, I lost this client, you know, whatever. Is this life or death? Is it life or death? And so I think being aware, okay, you know, this is how I'm feeling it, but am I overreacting? So I think step one is really gaining this sort of self-awareness because you have to catch yourself doing it. Because for people who naturally do it, they're not aware they're doing it. It's just how you think. And so being aware that you're having a negative thought and you maybe don't have to have a negative thought is thing number one. Thing number two is you then have to say, okay, could I reframe this in some way? Maybe I didn't like this job so much to begin with, or, you know, maybe this is an opportunity for me to develop skills in, you know, a different area of my career or whatever. So trying to reframe it in a more positive way after you have that self-awareness is really important. And besides the reframing things for that, I guess, I mean, it's very similar to like what cognitive behavioral therapy does, right? It helps you like you question your assumptions you have with your, your thinking. There's other things you can do too. Like if you find yourself in a negativity vortex, like things like go take a walk or go outside can sort of interrupt that negative, those, those negative thought patterns. Yeah. So as I said before, there's sort of two sets of things you can do. One are thoughts. Two, behaviors. And the key with behaviors is that some of the research suggests actually changing your behavior 
can change your thoughts. And that is exactly, again, the principle of cognitive behavioral therapy. And so, yeah, going for a walk, standing up, distracting yourself can be useful. Um, Spending time in nature. So going for a walk is good. Going for a walk outside is especially good. But even other kinds of behaviors can really help us. So people who get enough sleep are actually less likely to show this sort of cycle of negativity. So we also know that there are behaviors that people can do in their daily lives that can interrupt this negative cycle and increase happiness. Yeah, the the sleep thing is really interesting. I've noticed myself, I typically get like super negative at night, like right before bed. Like that's when you start like ruminating and like thinking how everything's terrible. And I'm like, well, I should just go to bed. I go to bed, I wake up in the morning, I feel great and I don't, I'm not thinking like that anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the challenges too is that many people, when they have trouble sleeping, uh, get on social media. And so there's this sort of like cyclic thing, right? You're not feeling great. Then you go online and check, you know, Twitter or something and, you know, read an article and then you get sort of more riled up or whatever. And, And so being able to sort of shut your mind off, get enough sleep is a really important way of improving your psychological well-being. Of course, it's also good for you physically that people who get enough sleep are less likely to get, you know, the cold, common cold. They have fewer arguments with romantic partners and so on. All right. So you just mentioned social media. What influence does social media have on our positivity or negativity? Yeah. So it's not good. <laughs> um, and and one of the challenges is that lots of research has shown that when people are on social media, they overwhelmingly feel worse about their own lives. And that's because most people on social media present only the good. So, you know, here are my career successes. Here's my fabulous family vacation. You know, my kid's valedictorian, you know, whatever. And and the problem is, is that when you go on social media and you see all of these illustrations of other people having these really perfect lives, you can feel worse in comparison. So for most people, social media kind of brings us down. Besides the social comparison that happens on social media, any other aspects of it that can cause us to have a more negative outlook on life? Well, so one of the most interesting findings is that even the mere presence of a cell phone seems to disrupt people's ability to focus on their here and now relationship. So the other sort of challenge, if you look at a cell phone use in particular, is that it can take away time that we would otherwise be spending exercising, you know, talking with a friend, you know, doing something, you know, social, going to a party, whatever. And so it interrupts our ability to really focus on our current relationship partners. And that of course has negative influences. Yeah. I've I've seen studies too. This is a social media. If you use it to facilitate like in-person meetups or facilitate those, those relationships you have with people in real life, like family members or close friends, it can be a boon where it can like go to negative territories when you just like reading the, about the lives of people you have no clue who they are really. Um, you, that, that's where things are going down. Yes. And, and I think the other key is that there are times and, and social media of course gets a bad rap overall, but there are also times in which social media can have benefits. And I, there's one example that I think, you know, really speaks to that. And that is when people, are sharing what we call their authentic selves on social media. So as I described before, lots of research shows people tend to present, you know, only the good. But there are times in which people are on social media and they're saying, you know, my kid won't sleep through the night or, you know, I'm feeling really, you know, lonely and it's Valentine's Day or whatever. And there are times in which if you are on social media and you are 
being authentic. You are expressing what's actually going on in your own life. It can actually be very supportive. The example that I turn to with this is uh, my mother died about 14 years ago. And for years, I avoided a social media on Mother's Day because it was just really brutal, you know, seeing all these moms and daughters together. And, you know, it was just awful. And then I decided to do something new. And that is that on Mother's Day, I post a picture of, you know, me and my mom and I'll write, I'm really missing my mom today. And then I will tag all of the other people I know who I'm friends with, you know, who have also lost their moms, which of course, you know, every year is more and more people. And so many people have said to me that it felt so comforting that here's a day that's hard for them. And I'm acknowledging that it's hard for me also, because one of the things is that feeling sad and alone is worse than feeling sad and like connected to other people. And social media can provide that opportunity for people to develop connections and therefore feel less alone. I think another way social media can make us more negative is that okay, people tend to have a negativity bias. So the, the stuff that spreads on social media is often like negative, like just like unpleasant stuff. And so if you constantly see that over and over and over again in your feed, you get the idea, well, everything's terrible when everything's not terrible. Yes. And, and, and we actually probably are evolutionarily like hardwired in the brain to respond more quickly to negative events because the reality is if, you know, at an evolutionary level, if there's a threat, you know, there's a snake, there's a poisonous spider, you know, there's a lion or whatever, you needed to be able to adapt very quickly and respond to those negative threats in a way that like, oh, there's a pretty rainbow or a flower evolutionarily, you didn't need to recognize those so quickly to survive. So there's some evidence, in fact, that our brains are hardwired to pay attention to negative stuff more than positive. So again, you have to override that by thinking, like questioning, like, okay, is it really as bad as my brain says it is? Probably not. Yes, exactly. So you mentioned comparison on social media, but comparison can also happen offline. How, I mean, I think you meant, you quoted Theodore Roosevelt who said that comparison is the thief of joy. How can you, how can we manage that tendency for us to want to compare ourselves to others? And when we usually do that, it ends up making us feel terrible. So what can we do about that? So it's really important to recognize that when we compare ourselves to other people on social media or in other ways, we're not really comparing ourselves to other people because all we're doing is comparing ourselves to what we're seeing of them. And we don't actually know what goes on in their real lives. So often when we do this comparison, we're thinking, oh, everything in their life is so perfect and they just got this great job or you know, whatever, and I feel worse. But we're not actually recognizing all that they're going through. And I think that's really important for us to keep in mind that we understand all that's bad in our own lives in a way that we don't recognize what's bad in other people's lives. So these comparisons, in effect, aren't really accurate. And being able to disengage from that comparison and focus on yourself and your own goals and achievements and not how do they compare to other people is essential. Yeah, I think that's important because when we compare, it's typically relative, right? Like you might be doing great like in your career, you're making a good salary, you know, an absolute salary, but then you compare it to like the people in your neighborhood and because they're making a little bit more than you, like, well, I'm not, maybe I'm not doing as great, even though you are doing fantastic. Right. There, there's something that I think is really illustrates that finding, and it's an economics principle, which is called the wealthy neighborhood paradox. And, and this example, in fact, illustrates that people who live in wealthy neighborhoods, so neighborhoods that have, have been identified as having, you know, very um, high mean incomes based on zip codes, 
people tend to feel less happy. And the challenge is these are people who are living in really wealthy places in which, you know, they're not worried about basic survival or, you know, food or, you know, safety or whatever. They have lots of money. But the issue is they may not have as much as their next door neighbor who has a nicer car or, you know, a second home or a pool or, you know, whatever it is. And so the challenge is, yes, that we stop saying, am I okay? And we start saying, oh my gosh, these people are doing so much better than I am. And that's not the reality because the reality is you can be doing just fine and you should be happy in that. There's a whole like big fish in a little pond or a little fish in a big pond. If you're the big fish in a little pond, you actually might do better like or feel better than you would. Yeah, there's actually really interesting research, I think published last year that shows that high school students who go to like really elite, you know, private schools, prep schools can sometimes feel much worse because the comparison is like all around them. Whereas people who are in, you know, less selective schools actually have higher self-esteem because they're not forced to do that kind of comparison all the time. And because you have, you're feeling better, you probably will perform better, right? So it's sort of this vicious cycle. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And be happier. I mean, all of the benefits, right? So another interesting thing, the research you found is that the way we spend our money can influence whether we have a negative or positive outlook on life. What's some of the research there? So what I think is so interesting about that is that people often assume more money, more money, more money, you know, then I'll be happier. That's, you know, very, very common belief in our society. And the reality is that once you have achieved, you know, sort of a basic standard of living that you're not, you know, worried about basic survival, there's very little data suggesting that, you know, greater and greater wealth is going to lead to greater happiness. And what matters far more than how much money you have is actually how you spend that money. And people who spend money on experiences, so tickets to the big game or, you know, travel or, you know, concert or Broadway show or whatever, have higher levels of happiness than people who spend money on belongings, you know, expensive watch, purse, you know, car, shoes, whatever. So it's not how much money you have. It really seems to be, how do you spend that money? And I imagine spending on experiences with other people like compounds the positivity. Absolutely. And one of the interesting findings, of course, is that we're more likely to spend money on belongings that are for ourselves. You know, we often, you know, don't share our, you know, coat or laptop or, you know, whatever with somebody else. But when we talk about experiences, we often are doing those, you know, with family members or friends. So, oh, let's all go out and try this new restaurant or, you know, let's take a family trip to Italy or whatever. And so spending money on experiences lets you anticipate them, lets you reflect back on them, and also lets you do them with other people, which which adds to the enjoyment. And some other interesting research that, that you highlight, and I've seen other places too, is that people who just thinking about money can like put you in a negative mindset. Just like thinking about cash, like, like a Scrooge McDuck is going to turn you into a Scrooge McDuck. Absolutely. And in fact, even like very subtle primes about money increase people's focus on acquiring possessions and materialism, all of which is associated with lower levels of happiness. And the, the the sad thing is that I think millennials and like Gen Z, like they're like this research shows they're very materialistic. Like they'd rather have lots of money and stuff than like, I think the study they said, like make a difference in the world or something like that. And that's leading to, that could be leading to a lot of young people feeling anxious and depressed. And there's probably other factors there, but that's, that could be a factor too. Absolutely. Uh, there's been research that has examined the level of narcissism, so sort of self-focused on college seniors, you know, for many, many years. And research shows that narcissism is rising. And narcissism, of course, is the opposite of 
empathy and connection and so on. And yet what we know brings people happiness, the quality of their relationships, not how much money they have. Well, speaking of the quality of your relationships, that can have a big factor on your positive route, uh, your positive or negative outlook on life. What is, what, what role do our relationships, how can that influence our, our outlook on life? So the single best predictor of happiness is the quality of our relationships. And as I said before, it's not how many relationships you have, it's whether they are high quality relationships. And the people who have high quality relationships, again, with family members, friends, dating partners, spouses, whatever, have very consistently higher levels of happiness. In part because when we have those high quality relationships, we can be our authentic selves. We don't have to pretend that we're something. We can be who we really are. It also allows us to have meaningful conversations and that really provides a boost in happiness. And I think it could also mean that if your relationships are terrible, like if there's like toxic people in your life, it may mean you have to cut those off because they're just dragging you down too much. And that could be hard. Yeah, there was actually a piece in the Washington Post, you know, within the last few weeks about that. And the reality is that when you have toxic people in your life, it's bad for your own physical and psychological well-being. And what I say is if there are people you can cut out, try to cut them out. But if there are people who you can't cut out, you know, it's your sister, you know, or something and and you just can't avoid it try to minimize contact and to try to make sure that after you spend time with that person, spend time doing something that you know is going to bring you out of it. So I'm going to see my sister at Thanksgiving, but you know, after Thanksgiving, I'm going to go for a run and then I'm going to go see a movie with my best friend and you know, whatever, because I know I'm going to need that lift after I have to spend time with this toxic person. And you can also reframe it like, well, it's an opportunity for me to practice my empathy and grow as a person by spending time with this person. Oh, see, you're very good at this. How are you naturally an Eeyore? That's such a good example. (laughs) (laughs) I've read lots of books on it. So I I know, I know the tricks. Putting it into practice is the hard part. Putting it into practice is the hard part. (laughs) That's good. Well, Catherine, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? So I have a website, which is sandersonspeaking.com. And that website provides information about this book and some audio courses I've done. They're copies uh, of my speeches that if people want to watch a video and learn more about me. Well, fantastic. Well, Catherine Sanderson, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Have a nice rest of your day. My guest today was Dr. Katherine Sanderson. She's the author of the book, The Positive Shift. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash positive shift, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find thousands of well-researched, thorough articles on personal finance, personal development, how to be a better family man, health and fitness, you name it, we've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think can get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay encouraging you to not only listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've learned into action. Thank you.